All right, well, um, let's transition and jump back into the Word of God. If you would, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Actually, turn your Bibles to Matthew 16 to start. Let's start there. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 16 to begin our time. One of the things I love about Scripture and uh, about the way the Scripture works, you know that we've been in this study of the birth of the church, the first church born by God. And what's sweet is that when you see what, what, what they call in hermeneutical circles, the study of Scripture, really, is all you need to know about that term, is that it talks about how, how the texts of Scripture, intertextuality, how the texts of Scripture connect to one another to give, us, to give us more confidence in the reliability of the Word. Well, what's sweet is we're going to spend our morning looking at, at really the birth of the church and what the church looks like as it, as it takes shape in its first couple weeks. But what we're looking at in Acts 2 is a fulfillment of what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 16. And I love this because it, it just lays out for us in the clearest of terms what the Lord Jesus promises to His church. And, and as you think about Matthew 16, there's nothing else that Jesus ever made this type of promise to. He never made this promise to an institution. He never made it to a university. He's never made it to a social club. He's never made it to some group of people other than those people that are made up of the church. He made a promise to the church. And I love this. Matthew 16, look at what he says to Simon Peter. And interestingly enough, who's preaching in Acts 2? The birth of the first church. Peter. Interesting. He said to him, let's start, let's just start in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say is the son of, the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father who is in heaven, finish the sentence, is the one that revealed it to you. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, will not overpower it. Just look at that again. Just think of that statement made in verse 18. I say to you, Peter, the one who's going to preach the first sermon, the one who I am going to empower by my spirit to give doctrine to and be the apostle that begins the beginning foundation of the church and it's going to be built on the doctrine that I give you and on your apostolic office. And you're going to preach the first sermon, Peter. He doesn't know any of this, but Jesus does. He says, Peter, you and the doctrine that I give you on that... Starting in Acts 2, he doesn't say that, but we know that now. I will build my church, and hell itself cannot come against it. Think about that. And I think about that because I read a statement like that in contrast to what I oftentimes read in blogs or articles or Christianity Today magazines. And I often read things like this. Hey, Everybody, we're going to teach you how to build the church. Or, attention, here's how you reach the millennial. Or, why is your church emptying? 
We can tell you how to keep people in your church. Here's how you gain more attendance. Here's how you get people more engaged. Here's how you fill in the blank. And as you read those articles, you begin to realize that they're not talking about what Jesus said he's going to do to build a church. They start talking about marketing campaigns and, and techniques and man-made gimmicks and man-made schemes. And, and, and when I read those, I, I have this strange flashback every time I read them because I'm reading about what someone says, here's how you grow a church, here's ministry. And then when they talk about that, it sounds so much like my old life as a marketing rep. My job was in marketing. My job was to put a brand out in the market. My job was to, to manage the brand and make sure everybody out there thought a certain way about us and to care for relationships. And, and it, was, it was a good job and it was, it was right to be thinking about how people cared about our company and what they thought of us. But we used all types of tactics and man-made gimmicks and schemes to help shape people's perspective. It was all, it had human fingerprints all over it. And when I read about men saying, here's how you build the church, and they explain it like I'm in a marketing meeting at my old job, I know that they've drifted. And you say, what is that? Why would people think they need to come up with a new way to do church? Why would people need to come up with a new method? I'll tell you why. They do not believe what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. They don't believe it. You say, well, how could you say something so definitive? Because if they believed it, then they would use the means and the methods that Jesus says builds His church. He builds it. He reaches people. We're just the vessels and the instruments that He uses. Men today, too often, have churches that are so-called churches that have drifted from believing what Jesus said. I myself will build my church. And hell cannot get in the way of what I am doing. I, I, it feels today sometimes, beloved, and you may feel like this, almost like that so many people in the church today are, are trying to put, put forth what they call the bride of Christ, but it's more like a mannequin. <laughs> so they're trying to put together the image, hey, this is what church is supposed to look like. See, it kind of still resembles what the Bible says, but it's, it's masquerading as a true bride of Christ by being a mannequin for Christ. It's fake. It's artificial. And that's why it's powerless and lifeless. And you say, does Jesus take that seriously? Oh yeah. Go read Revelation 2 and 3 sometime. Read what Jesus says to churches that have drifted from trusting that He will build His church and building it upon what He says to build it on. What's He keep saying to them? If you do not repent, I'll remove your lampstand. What's your lampstand? That which holds your light. If I pull out the lampstand, you have no light. The church goes dark. Jesus leaves the building. So... This is why I love thinking about that mindset before we go back to Acts 2. Because Acts 2 is the fulfillment of what it looks like when men believe Matthew 16. So let's turn back to Acts 2. Turn your Bibles back to Acts 2. And for us, beloved, this is crucial. Because we live in a day where men put their fingerprints on what God is the ultimate architect of and they tamper with it so much it ceases to look like what God says a church should be. And Acts 2 is the birth of the first church. And if you remember, there's eight stunning scenes. We'll just walk back through them as we get a running start to our passage. If you remember, scene 1 is in verses 1 to 4, where the Spirit explodes from heaven on those sitting down. And you remember, I made that the point because 
Acts 2 begins with not men sitting around going, how could we build a church? What could we do? They're just waiting. Jesus said the Spirit's going to come, and when it comes, you'll know it, and that's going to be the beginning of the church age, in between His first coming and His death and His resurrection, and now we're waiting for His second coming. You go wait, and when the Spirit comes, then I'm going to come, and you're going to be anticipating my second coming, but in the meantime... I'm going to begin the birth of the church. So the church comes and explodes upon the apostles, and what happens? They're given signs, they're given wonders, they're given the ability to speak in foreign tongues that were not their own, right? There's a, it's like a storm comes into the building, there's, um, there's heavy winds, and there's lightning flashes, but there's no change in the environment. The Spirit comes down in stunning fashion. That was 1 to 4. 4 to 11... The Spirit begins to empower those men, as I said, to preach in foreign languages. Remember, they preach in languages not their own. And those that were listening said, uh, that's the language of my hometown. You're speaking like you're a native from where I'm from. How did you do that? And then remember, they concluded, oh, you must be drunk. <laughs> they concluded that a supernatural work of God, they attribute it to drunkenness in 4 to 11. And then you remember scene 3 in verses 12 and 13. Just go ahead and look at it as we're starting to get closer to our passage. And they all continued. This is the crowd. This is the Jews that had come in for Pentecost. Some million Jews had come into Jerusalem. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking. Even when the Spirit of God came with that type of supernatural power, they were still full of pride. So, what's Peter do? Verse 14, Peter takes a stand with the eleven, raises his voice, and declares to them. And you remember, Peter preaches that thundering sermon where he, pre he quotes Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Joel 2. And what's he do? He basically tells them, Hey, guys, Jews, you came here to worship the Messiah, but guess what? You just executed the Messiah. You came here and said you believe in the Old Testament prophecies. You actually stiff-armed the Old Testament prophecies. You've ignored King David. And now you're standing here mocking God, saying you're worshiping Him at Pentecost, which was the gathering 50 days after Passover. And Peter said to them, you guys are in big trouble. Christ is going to come back. He's going to deal with his enemies, and you're currently his enemies. That was the sermon that went from 14 to 36. It was the first Christian sermon. Now you go back to Matthew 16 and you realize, man, Jesus had a lot in his mind when he was telling Peter, I'm going to build this on the foundation of what you're going to be doing for me. Even the first sermon. Then... We see the crowd's spirit-produced response. We saw this last week. Notice verse 37. Notice verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard what? When the Jews heard they had executed the Messiah and denied the Scriptures, and they stood condemned and guilty, they were cut to the heart, pierced to the heart, penetrated to the heart, stabbed in the heart by the very third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says to them in verse 38, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Stop there. Last time we studied that, didn't you? We saw what happens when the Spirit of God penetrates a heart. When the Spirit of God comes in and cuts so deep that only the supernatural inner life marrow can be cut and it can only be cut by the Spirit. So we saw all that. Now what happened after that is absolutely amazing. Because Peter now, in 38 to 40, as we saw last time, he concluded his stunning sermon and then the church was born. Notice verse 41. So then those who had received His word were baptized 
And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Let's stop there. What's been happening is we've been covering, if you think about this, we just covered some 41 verses and that covered, basically it started at 9 a.m. and we must be sometime in the afternoon. So now Peter's been showing us the immediate response when God changes a heart. People repent, they're baptized. Remember, they went into the waters of baptism publicly and were acknowledging their faith in Christ. They were leaving the perverse generation and joining the church. That's, that was the immediate response. Now the rest of Acts, you can't miss this. The, the rest of Acts 2 goes from the immediate to the long term. And so now what Peter does is it's almost as if He's shown us this great picture of when God's birthing the first church. And he says, now let me back up and give you some background. I'm going to tell you what happened on their first Sunday and what happened in their first weeks. So you've got the immediate and the long term. And so really what you have here in scene 8 is body life exploding. Body life exploding in the first couple weeks of the church. And can I just tell you, if you're a part of Grace Emmanuel or you go to another good church... When you tune in today, there's going to be the greatest sense of encouragement. There's going to be the greatest sense of comfort. You are going to realize that you officially have the most non-innovative, non-creative pastors and elders on the face of the planet. We have literally done nothing to do anything more and improve upon what happened the first couple weeks the church was born. That is a comfort. Here we sit some 2,000 years later on a Sunday morning doing the exact same thing that the early church did. And what you're going to do the rest of this week will do with the, be a part of the activities the early church were a part of. I just sat back in my chair this week and thought, thank you, Lord. It's not like I said, okay, Lord, yes, okay. I can't wait to go to an expository preaching ministry that has communion, that baptizes publicly, that's serious about sanctification, that calls me to leave the culture, that exercises church discipline, that preaches expository sermons, that trusts in the Spirit's power, on and on and on. Oh, yep, that's what I want. Oh, Grace Emmanuel, let me go find them. You didn't do that, did you? You wandered in here like me. And yet you're here and you're a part of a place that's doing the same thing the church has been doing since its first couple weeks. That's a comfort. That is such an encouragement. So here's what I've titled our outline that's going to take us a couple weeks to get through. But here it is. Ten marks of a church that has been planted by God. Ten marks of a church that has been planted by God. I like Mark Dever and his nine marks, but I didn't feel like I could really do the exact same thing as him. <laughs> Ten marks of a church that has been planted by God. And why do I say it's been planted by God? Because everything about this section of Scripture has been all about how the Spirit of God moves on hearts. The Spirit of God empowers preaching. The Spirit of God convicts hearts. The Spirit of God changes people's orientation from worship of self to worship of God. The Spirit of God enables repentance. This is what happens when the Spirit of God is moving in a church. And you say, well, if this is a church that's planted by God, this is what it should look like when it's healthy. Any drift from this is a deviation from what God wants His church to look like. So we should come at this passage like that and look at this and say, Luke is recording for all of church history, here's what a healthy local church looks like. To drift and deviate is to put your fingerprints on what God has done. To say to God, hey, God, nice church model that you have in Acts 2, but I think I'm going to improve upon it. Can you imagine the arrogance? So, ten marks of the first church planted by God. Here it is. First mark. They have a regenerate, regenerate membership role. 
They have a regenerate membership role. That is just a way to say the church is made up of Christians. The word for regeneration is what? It's a word in the New Testament to describe someone being born again. Someone who's been transformed by the power of the gospel. Hey, could we, could we turn that? Sorry. Like, I'm, I feel like I'm competing with him. Oh. I can compete with him, but he's got some serious ampage. You guys over here are straining a bit. Yeah. You're like, church planted by God. And Luke says, and Luke says. And get yourself ready for communion. Let's pray. And we have communion this morning, so if any of you bow your head at the end of my message, I understand. <laughs> the joy of having a healthy, growing church, right? We compete with one another. <laughs> All right. First mark of a church planted by God, they have, re- they have a regenerate membership role. That is to say, the Spirit of God has changed people's hearts. Just look back in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. I told you last week, Matthew 16, that, that is the only way a sinner can be converted is if the Spirit of God invades their inner life and changes their heart and makes them new. What happens in that moment is they're brand new. You realize if you're a Christian, you were born a second time, right? From heaven. First time from your parents, second time from heaven, John 3. Born from above. Here's how Colossians 1.13 describes it. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us. You've had an identity transfer from darkness to light into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And you've got to realize that when you were transferred from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of light, you were transferred into what is called the body, which is called the church, which is called Christ's bride. You are now a part of that. In fact, if you don't understand that in your conversion, you went from an individual who lived for yourself, rebelling against God, to a saved person who's been grafted in, in one sense, to this thing called the body, the church, then you don't understand the fullness of your conversion. Conversion from the world is leaving the world and joining the church. In fact, look back at what he says in verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them. Okay, now they've come to Christ, but he keeps exhorting them solemnly, urgently. Be saved from this perverse generation. Leave the culture. Leave the perversity. Leave your old life. Verse 41. They're they're interconnected even grammatically. And those that were leaving the culture and receiving the word were baptized and added to the church. 3,000 souls plus were added. You've got to understand that part of your conversion is not, I go from my identity of myself to my identity in Christ. You don't go to my identity in Christ until you fully understand you have now a new identity in being the bride of Christ, part of a church, which is recognized in local churches. In fact, look at Acts 20. They say, this very thing is said. You, you will not understand your identity as a Christian until you realize you go from a singular identity to a corporate identity. You are part of a church. And not just the universal church, because how would we know the universal church if they weren't recognized by local churches? The book of Acts knows nothing about a person being a Christian and not recognized by a local church. Notice Acts 20, verse 28. Look at what is said here to the Ephesian elders. By the way, as you're thinking about this, Everywhere you go in Scripture is talking to specific elders or specific believers that are part of a specific flock to be thinking about how those passages should be applied in their local body primarily. And then secondarily other places. So, notice verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves 
and for all the flock. So he's speaking to elders. When he says, elders, be on guard for yourself and all your flock. When he said flock, what would happen in those elders' mind? They would have a group of people in their mind. It wouldn't just be like, be on guard for the flock universal that you see walking down the streets of Palestine. It would be, when flock is said there, it's speaking of those local believers in my local congregation that I'm going to give an account for before the Lord Jesus Christ. They were counting them. They knew them. They were recognized. But I want you to notice where their identity is found, where their purchased identity is found. Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock. Watch this. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Beloved, you've got to see what's going on there. The local church, the universal church is identified by local churches and those local churches are made up of people, notice, that have been purchased and the payment that was made was blood and the blood was Christ and that makes your new identity in the church. So to say, I'm a Christian that goes to Starbucks on Sunday morning but doesn't really hang around with believers. Like, I'm a Christian, but I don't really need the church. I don't really need to be a part of the church. That is to say to Paul, who's speaking to the Ephesian elders, Paul, that was really nice encouragement you gave in Acts 20, 28, but we don't really have to be a part of under elders and overseers and part of a church. We're purchased, but we're just not identified. That would be nonsense. The church is made up of regenerate believers who are identified and known. And by the way... Somebody's counting. Go back to Acts 2. Church membership is involved here. That's why I called it a regenerate membership. In Jerusalem, at this time, you had all those people that had come on from all the foreign districts and you had the local 200,000 or so that were in Jerusalem. And notice it again. Verse 41. Those who had received His word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. That day there were added about 3,000 souls. Let me tell you how the original reads right there. The original reads like this. It would be like this. It wouldn't read, it would be this. Those who had received His word were baptized and souls were added. 3,000. It'd be like saying, I'm going to a college and career retreat with a bunch of souls. 150 to be exact. They were counting. They were identifying them. They were noticing we've got 3,000 that have come to Christ, and we know that was 3,000 men, so there was a plus. But the, the point of this is that Luke is trying to hone in upon, this isn't just people were saved and they stayed where they were. These were people who were saved and were counted and were numbered and were identified. And they were identified by what, beloved? Look back at it. Those that had left the culture, verse 40, leave this perverse generation, baptized, received the word, and then we'll see in a moment their lives were being transformed. So, you know, if you think about it, there's lots of places in America where a whole bunch of people show up to a building. Some of those places have church membership, some of them don't. But let's just talk about a bunch of people showing up to a building. That building is not a church until that church is recognizing that there's true believers here marked out by by regeneration, which is marked out by the willingness to leave the old life and commit themselves to Christ, which shows the Spirit's power, which shows that's a place full of believers. Well, if you have a whole bunch of people that show up to a building but don't show off the power of the Spirit, 
They don't show any repentance in their life. That's not a church. That's just a whole people show, bunch of people showing up to a place. What makes it a church is it's full of Christians. Because the church is for those purchased. And then those elders and leaders were accounting for them. They were numbering them. You say, why would that happen? Why would, why would churches throughout the New Testament count and identify who's there? That seems kind of controlling. No. It's just like a sheep and a shepherd, right? A shepherd has his sheep, right? And those are his sheep that he knows who to care for, knows who to lack out for. Those sheep know their interdependency and the shepherd knows who they are. Why? Because he knows who he's responsible for. The Bible says that shepherds are responsible for their sheep. Those apostles and those pastors wanted to know who they were responsible for. 1 Peter 5, you can go look at it later. It says those allotted to their charge. There's a particular group there to shepherd. And then Hebrews 13, 17, just flip over to it. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Just to realize why we have to count, why we keep membership, why we know who's who, why we know who's in, why we know who's out. We've got to be able to obey passages like Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Verse 7. Speaking to believers. Remember those who led you. What would be in those believers' mind? Names. They'd be thinking of people that led them. People they looked to. People they were accountable to. They were a part of a body. Remember them. Who spoke the word of God to you. They'd be thinking of their preachers. Consider the results of their conduct. They'd be watching their life. And imitate them. And then look at verse 17. Obey your leaders. And submit to them. Not because they have personal authority, but Christ's authority through the Scriptures, when they have the Scriptures in their heart and mind. For they keep watch over your souls. Again, it's assumed they know who it is. There's indefinite pronouns here for they and for them and for these others. He doesn't have to list the name. It's known. For they will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief, for it would be unprofitable for you. You realize that regenerate church members are recognized, they're counted, and they're joining the church. And in Jerusalem it was 3,000, but all through your New Testament you see people joining the church. Think of how many names you have listed in the New Testament. You've got Yodius and Syntyche and Alexander, and you've got all these names that are listed. Then you have all these times where they don't list names, they just say, serve one another, or look out for that brethren, or watch out for that teacher. It was assumed that the church knew who they were talking about. And even think about this, for membership-wise. You got in Acts 16, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, you've got Corinth born, Philippi born, Ephesus born, the church in Colossae born. And all of those churches were recognized by a group of people that were gathered, and it was known who that group was. Called out believers who had identified the marks of saving faith, who those leaders were recognizing, who that church had committed to them, and they were part of that body. So, a healthy church, the first church, was recognized by regenerate believers that were being counted and identified and they knew who they were supposed to shepherd. You see that all through the scriptures, beloved. Charles Spurgeon was uh, talking one time to people who maybe had come to Christ and been regenerate but hadn't committed themselves to a church, hadn't really done what the Acts 2 believers did, as we'll see in a moment, they immediately launched into church life. They were a Christian that was floating. We might call them dating the church. You ever read that book? Stop dating the church. Charles Spurgeon says this to believers who profess faith in Christ, say they're regenerate, say the Spirit of God has pierced their heart and changed them, but aren't going to be like Acts 2 and be part of that number that's counted. They don't want to be identified. They don't want to join. They don't want commitment. They want to kind of stay on the fringes and do church their way or bounce around without committing under a local 
board of shepherds and elders and overseers to care for them and using their gifts and body life. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. Now I know there are some who say, well, I hope I have given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to any church because I can be a Christian without it. Now, Charles Spurgeon sarcastically says, Now you are quite clear about that, he says. You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by obedient. So he's saying you can be a Obedient Christian, even though you're disobeying? Then he says this, What is the brick for? To help to build a house with. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good to be a brick while it's kicking about on the ground as it would be if it was a brick that was in a house. It is a good-for-nothing brick until it is built into a wall. It is no good. So he says this, So you Rolling Stone Christians... (laughs) I do not believe you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. End quote. True churches, Acts 2 churches, don't have rolling stone Christians. They have committed believers who have been transformed by the power of the word, and they've joined in membership to their local church to come into those shepherds, and those shepherds have helped them make sure that that regeneration is genuine by the power of the Spirit happening in their life which is what was happening in Acts 2. There was massive conversions, and then they were joining. So, that's the first mark of a healthy church. They had a regenerate church membership. Now, watch what happens. You may say, how would you know that the power of the Spirit is happening in someone's life? How would that be identified? What's that look like if that kind of conversion takes place? Well, go back to Acts 2. Let's look at what happens next. This is so exciting. Watch what happens in the first church, beloved. You've got a regenerate church membership, people born again, their lives are being transformed, they're added to the church, 3,000 plus souls, they're being counted, they're being baptized, they're being cared for. Now watch this. Look back at what happens next. They've left the culture. And verse 42. After all that happened, 3,000 souls were added. Watch this. They were continually devoting themselves. Stop there. There's nothing passive about that language. Read it again. Those that had been born again, joined the church, left the culture, come unto the leaders, come unto the elders, been added to the church. They were continually devoting themselves to four activities. Notice, apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Four activities they were devoting themselves to. Now, here's what you need to understand. Luke is doing something important here. The emphasis on this whole paragraph is devotion. He wants the early church to see that if someone has truly been born again, if someone has been stabbed in the heart by the Spirit of God and cut that deeply, here's the transformation you'll see. They will become one who is devoted. Absolutely devoted. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's how this word devoted, it's a compound word. Here's how you could translate it. It's two words, and it means to press towards something with endurance. It means a strong devotion, a compulsion of loyalty, a wholesale commitment to be aggressive, to be busily engaged, to be one that perseveres even when it's difficult. It's used for the armor of God in Ephesians 6 to talk about battling. It conveys ongoing action despite obstacles. That's how he's describing what the early believers did when they committed themselves to the church. Wholesale commitment to body life. Apostles' doctrine, prayer, breaking of bread, which is communion, fellowship. 
So let's say it the other way. What's the opposite way? Let me tell you what this doesn't mean in how you should approach the church in light of the early church. To be casual towards church life. To be indifferent towards church life. To be reluctant, to be passive, to hold back, to give up when it's hard. The sense by Luke is that if they were born again, they commit, they devote, they give their life to God's people. Why? Because they love what God loves, and God loves His church. Ephesians 3, it's the perfect wisdom put on display. If your heart's been changed, then you now love what your Creator loves. He loves the church, and so should you. And that means you devote yourself to these four activities. And that turns into our second, third, fourth, and fifth mark, really. We're just going to do one of them for the rest of our time today. The second mark of a healthy church, if someone has truly been born again and changed and they're part of the regenerate church membership, they devote themselves to sound doctrine. That's the second mark. Second mark of a church God has planted is it's devoted to sound doctrine. Notice what it says there. They were continually, ongoingly, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. I love that because if you think about your life, what drives everything you do? How you think. (laughs) How you think is the way you live. How you think is what matters. We are a thinking religion. And the early church was driven by doctrine. They were a doctrine-centered church. But you know what I love about this? They're not just committed to doctrine on Sundays. They didn't just come to two sermons in a fellowship group. In fact, notice verse 46. They were committed to the apostles' doctrine. Verse 46, look at this. Day by day, continuing in one mind and breaking bread from house to house. It was their very life. Doctrine is what they lived for. It's what they loved. Every chance they got, they just wanted to be around the apostles' teaching. One more sermon. One more discipleship session. One more opportunity to grow. And you know what I love about that? All of that is what drove them to be the type of church they were. Look at 46 again. Day by day, they're devoted. And they're with one mind. So true doctrine creates unity, as I'll speak about in a moment. From house to house... Day by day. You think about that. Where would a church of 3,000 gather in one place? Well, we'll see in a little bit. There's the temple that they probably went to. I mean, think about 3,000 plus souls. That's a large congregation. We've sit 402 in our sanctuary and probably have 800 show up on a Sunday morning. 3,000 plus needed to gather. And so their devotion to the Apostles' Doctrine was not just corporate gathering, which probably happened at the temple when they'd go there to pray and they'd gather, but house to house and day to day and from discipleship session to discipleship session. I could imagine that these, that these early believers, conversations, you could see they'd go out to lunch, they'd go get a meal together and they'd say, man, that was really helpful what Pastor Peter preached this morning. <laughs> It was really insightful. It connected some dots for me in doctrine that I hadn't really thought about. Then another person says, yeah, that actually ties in. I was meeting with Andrew last week for falafels and discipleship. That's a a Jewish bagel. Um, And we were were having a, a nice meal. And he was telling me about time with the Lord Jesus. And what Peter preached today in that sermon connected dots for me what Jesus said. And I'm starting to see doctrine come together. And then another person would say, yeah, I met with so-and-so leader in their small group last week, house to house. And we were doing a devotional and he was talking about some of the ways that Jesus taught us uh, or that the, the prophets were teaching in the Old Testament and they warned Israel. And now I'm seeing what was wrong with our people. And that connects to what Peter said. And that connects to what Jesus said. And all of a sudden, what was happening? 
doctrine was forming the very existence and the very fabric of body life. Sometimes we think doctrine, we think uh, soteriology, pneumatology, anthropology, all these big ologies. Doctrine is just the Word of God being taught. There's a doctrine of sanctification. There's a doctrine of love. There's a, a doctrine of how you approach body life. There's a doctrine of how you deal with friendship. Anytime you're learning a body of truth, it's a doctrine. They were absolutely committed and driven by day-to-day, house-to-house, life-on-life, discipleship, body life, in one another's lives. It was a vibrant culture of body life. Think about, think about what they would think then if it was day-to-day, house-to-house, all the time, driven by doctrine. What they would think about the idea of a Christian just showing up on Sunday, being a part of one sermon, and then the next week they'd show up and not be a part of any body life through the week. They would say, what, uh, you're, you're not a part of body life? You're, you're, not in, you know, you're not in the small group with Matthew? <laughs> you're not in the preaching lab with the other guys? You're not in the couples group? You're not, we're in house to house. You know we meet all the time. We're, we're day to day. We're house to house. We're always in one of those lives. We've got all these small groups going on. We've got all this discipleship going on. You, have, you just come once a week? Are you okay? Uh, Luke says that it's devotion. If you've been changed by the power of the Spirit of God, then your life's been radically reoriented and all you're devoted to now is learning the doctrine so you can know how to honor the Lord. You're on the fringe of that. Do you know Christ? Are you okay? Are you a false teacher trying to come into our midst? They would have had no category for a Sunday Christian. None. The American approach to Christianity they would not have grasped where people keep everyone at a distance, remain individualistic. They were literally in one another's homes, built into the fabric of one another's lives. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> Being at Grace Emanuel? Where people come here and they're like, whoa, you guys hang out a lot. In fact, I can't even afford to come to this church because everyone wants to get lunch all the time. I mean, isn't that a sweet thing though? Think about that. Day to day, house to house, devotion. And our conversations aren't just fluffy, cheesy, what's going on in the culture. We're about doctrine. We're about truth. It drives our life. That's what drives us. That's what compels us. Ever since I've come to Christ, that's all I've wanted is more truth, more equipping, more discipleship, more sermons in my mind, more books to read. I just want to grow. This word for devotion is implying all the early Christians were doing that. So what's wrong with us if we're not doing that, beloved? Something is, we have drifted personally if that's not our approach to body life. Look at it again. They were devoted, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching. You know what I was imagining a conversation might go like with those early believers? They might have opened up to Matthew 12 and said, You know, Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Or I'll use the New Living Translation, which I don't think I've ever used from the pulpit, but it's got a great translation here. (laughs) Anyone who isn't with me, this is the sense of it, opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. If there wasn't wholehearted devotion, then those early believers would say, you're either for him or against him. And the way you know you're for him is you're for what he's for. If you're not for the church and what he's for, then you're against him. This is serious body life. And you know what's sweet about this? This is what creates unity, beloved. This is where unity comes from. Doctrine. Notice verse 46 again. This devotion was day to day. Notice, they were continuing in one mind. You know why you love it here at this church if you love truth? 
Because some of you say, it's like all of you elders and leaders and pastors, and it's like you guys went to the same school and were cut out of the same cloth, and it's like someone's been you know, drinking the same kind of Kool-Aid. You all keep saying the same things. It's not because we have some Grace Emanuel Bible Church handbook. Here's what you say in this counseling scenario. Here's no, it's because we spend tons of time together stock, talking about truth, arguing about truth, thinking about truth, knowing that there's only one definition of truth and there's only one right approach, and we must understand what God says, why He says it, and what He meant, and we want to honor it. They were. Look at this. As they studied doctrine, as they had body life, as they prayed together, and everything, as we'll talk about in the week's head, they were continuing in one mind. You know what that means? Set on one purpose, one focus, one direction, one impulse, one conviction. You know what drives unity in a church? Precision. People say, recently, I don't know if you heard, but Andy Stanley, who's a big pastor out in, I don't know where he's at, North Carolina or something. But he came out and said, and he was instructing the churches at a conference, and he was talking about unity. And he was saying, hey, we've got to get the churches back to unity. And he went to Jesus in John 17. We all must become one. And here's what he said. He said, unity, as I'm going to tell you, is attained not by clarity and precision and devotion to doctrine, but by scratching doctrine. Then we'll have real unity. Here's what he says. Jesus prayed for oneness. Stanley says, that we'd be on the same page, says Stanley. This is mission critical. If they are not one, we will not win. Unity is mission critical, and disunity disrupts mission. Sure, I agree. But how do we get there? We will prioritize our oneness over doctrinal particularities. We read that again. We will prioritize oneness over doctrinal particularities. Our baptism, our communion, our style of worship, our preaching... Those don't matter. What matters is we just come together and hug each other, basically. Beloved, that's not unity. That's compromise. Could you imagine if the apostles showed up to the Code Orange Conference and Andy Stanley said that? They'd go right up to the stage and say, Hey, big boy, you have drifted from what it looks like when Jesus Christ plants a church. They're devoted to clarity and precision and unity around the same set of ideas and the same set of beliefs. And yes, we do have ways we disagree, but we work to come together because doctrine drives the one-mindedness. Not scratching doctrine so we can all hug each other and the, the culture is just going to go, you guys are just a bunch of compromisers. You don't even believe what you say you believe in. No. Here's what happened, beloved. So-called churches like that have departed from Acts 2. What we need to do is say, what are we about? We're about strong doctrine. Serious Bible teaching. Serious exaltation of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the supreme authority from every small group to every meal to every discipleship. They reign, not us. That drives it. You know, look at verse 40 again. Part of that doctrine too, let's just back off from the unity discussion and just realize, I'm going to teach a whole sermon on this in the coming weeks. But part of that doctrine that would have been taught that drove unity would have been the exhortation in verse 40, which I've already stated, but just look at it again. He kept on exhorting them, be saved from the perverse generation. That is, learn to live a holy life. Leave the culture. Leave friendships that will pervert your life. Leave influences that will pervert your life. Leave corrupting tendencies and ways you soak in the world. Extract yourself from that. Because that is the very thing that could ruin your ability to flourish. Part of the Apostles' doctrine was a regular exhortation about dealing with worldliness. 
So we might say by implication, a healthy church that teaches sound doctrine has a doctrine of sanctification and not a doctrine that says, love your Jesus and live in the world. It's if you love Jesus, you'll leave the world or you don't love Jesus. Because to love the world is to not have the love of the Father in you, 1 John 2. That doctrine would have also included everything else taught in this passage. Peter was sober about that. One pastor said this about truth in the church. When truth becomes secondary, a church ceases to be a church. Beloved, this is just our first, our second, really, uh, mark of a healthy church. And I wanted to camp on it because I don't want you all to imagine that we need something more than what we get. This is what drives unity. Listen to... Well, I'll just give you some passages. Go read 1 Timothy 4.6 later on and 1 Timothy 4.11-16. And then let me give you the opposite side. Do you know what happens when a church deviates from doctrine? 2 Timothy 4. A time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And they'll wanting their ears tickled, they will raise up for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and they'll turn away from the truth from doctrine and they'll turn to myths. When a church leaves its doctrine, it turns straight to myths. It deviates. It's gone ceases to be a church. Jesus removes the lampstand. So when someone says to you, you know what, I've come to your church and it just seems like you're all about doctrine and you're not about love, you should say, how do you know what love is? 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, it teaches you on love. That happens to be a doctrine. That's instruction from Scripture. You've learned about love because of doctrine. If they say, you're going to speak the truth in love, exactly. To speak truth is loving doesn't mean we're ungracious or we're unkind or we don't care for people. But the point that I'm making is is that doctrine and truth drives what we do. Next week we'll get into more about that. Why I believe it calls for even expository preaching. But let's review our time today. Our time's gone. When the Spirit comes, when God comes and plants a church, it has a regenerate membership role. It's devoted to sound doctrine. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see the rest. They have... This, this healthy church planted by God is devoted to vibrant fellowship, devoted to remembering Christ, devoted to fervent prayer, baptizing believers publicly, exercising church discipline, sharing resources, fearing God, having a warm spirit, and has effective evangelism. In the coming weeks, we'll cover the rest of those. But for today, just walk into the hallways and walk over to communion, which is part of a healthy church, and have good friendships and doctrinal conversations with people. And when you go to lunch today and you enjoy sharing fellowship and resources, and when you get together in small groups with week, just realize you're in the most uninnovated, unimpressive, not new, old, normal church that looks like one that's been planted by God. What an encouragement. Right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks for our time this morning. Thank you for Acts 2. It's fun to study and see what you do when you put your mark on a church and you transform people's hearts and you change them and then they love each other and as we're going to see in the coming weeks they literally sacrifice their resources and their goods and they sell property just to minister to one another. We're so grateful for that because this church is like ours. This church in Acts 2 was full of transplants from all over Asia Minor, all over the greater area of Jerusalem, Palestine. People would move into location to be a part of this church and people would sell property to care for them. I see that here at our church. I'm so grateful. As we go to communion, Lord, let us just sing with hearts full that you have marvelously put us in a healthy church. We don't deserve that. We didn't earn it. None of us were smart enough to engineer it. It's just grace. Thank you, Lord. In your name, amen. You guys are dismissed.